Luke 14, and find, if you would please, verse 25. I've entitled the message this morning, What Will Jesus Cost You? I want you to meditate on it. What will Jesus cost you? Luke 14, 25, the great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Luke begins this uh, section of chapter 14 by telling us here that large crowds are accompanying Jesus. Now, here, here's the interesting thing about Jesus. When you study in his Gospels, you discover rather quickly that his evangelism methods were quite different from what you might hear in an average seminar or book on church growth. Jesus wasn't after large crowds. Jesus was after true followers. So while large crowds flocked to him, as we see here in chapter 20 or chapter 14, whether for the food or for the miracles, he had a way of thinning out those crowds, weeding out, if you will, those who were there for the wrong reasons those who weren't truly set on following Jesus as Lord. 
You'll remember after the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, Jesus told the crowds of people that day who continued to accompany him that what they really needed was not physical bread. What they really needed was spiritual bread. He then follows those comments by giving them a very strong sermon on how he is the bread of life. And unless they come and feed on him, they were all going to perish. The entire sermon that Jesus gave that day emphasized an all-out commitment to Christ and Christ alone. And then the crowd began to disperse. They were only interested in the physical bread. They weren't that committed to the spiritual bread. And the Bible says the crowds left him. They they forsook him. They walked away from him in droves. And it was in that moment that Jesus turned and looked at his 12 as the crowds were walking away. And he said in John chapter 6 and verse 66, do you want to go away also? Are you going to leave too? Are you going to walk away from me as well? You see, Jesus never presented the gospel in half truths. His preaching wasn't a sales pitch where the salesman highlights the good parts while putting the not-so-pleasant parts in fine print, briefly mentioned, if not mentioned at all. Jesus' preaching, his, his evangelism, his invitations to follow him were not like that at all. In fact, Jesus gave a full disclosure of what it meant. To follow him. And that is exactly what he does here in our text. Large crowds were accompanying him. Many, no doubt, for the wrong reasons, or at least for half-hearted reasons. And so it was time, once again, for Jesus to emphasize to that large body of people what it meant to truly follow him, to test whether or not they had counted the cost to discern whether or not they would really follow him no matter what the cost would be. And so he does this by disclosing fully the cost of following Jesus. I'm not going to spend time this morning on verses 28 through 32, but the whole reference there is about Jesus counting the cost, or rather we counting the cost. Counting the cost. Who doesn't go out and build something without counting the cost first? What uh, warrior goes out to war without counting the cost first? Why would you and I ascribe a life of commitment to Christ without counting the cost first? And he illustrates this by saying those who don't count the cost eventually quit. They don't finish. They don't complete it. They walk away from it. God doesn't want us to walk away. He wants us to finish. He wants us to complete. He wants us to get the job done, so we better count the cost. And the question again this morning is, what will Jesus cost you? What will Jesus cost me? Well, he lays it out in full disclosure. 
We see the first one in verse 26. Would you write down number one? Following Jesus may cost you some relationships. Following Jesus may cost you some relationships. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me. By the way, let me just stop right there and say, anyone in this room can come to Jesus. Anyone. You want to come to him, you can come to him. By faith in him, repentance of your sins, Jesus invites you to follow him. But he wants you to understand the cost. He wants you to understand the reality. What it may cost you should you choose to come to him. And in this case, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, (coughs) wife and children, and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. Well, that's quite a shocking statement to anyone, isn't it? Whether you're hearing it then or whether you're hearing it now, that's, that's kind of a, an unbelievable requirement. <coughs> now, some of you are thinking, Pastor, I don't have any problem with hating the brother and sister part. <laughs> My mom and dad, though, I'm struggling with that one. Now, we've talked about statements like this before, haven't we? Let me remind you that Jesus is not demanding that we literally hate our family. Okay? He's not demanding that we literally hate anyone for that matter. In fact, to hate others goes against his teaching to honor and love our families. And for that matter, to show love in all our relationships. So if you're asking the question this morning, how could Jesus command us to love our enemies and hate our families at the same time? I want to answer that question for you. He's not. He's not asking you to love and honor people and hate them at the same time. This is a hyperbolic statement. For example, in answering the question, which commandment is the most important of all, in Mark's gospel, Jesus said the most important is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second most important commandment is just like it, it's similar but it's love others as you love yourself. All right? So what Jesus is saying about the most important commandments in the Bible is that as important as it is to love others, those who desire to follow Jesus must love God first. They must love God foremost. The greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then then love others as you love yourself. In other words, our love and commitment to Jesus is to transcend every human relationship, even the ones closest to us, such as our own flesh and blood. So, he's not demanding that you hate your family in order to follow him. He's not demanding that you hate anyone in order to follow him. He's demanding that you love him more than you love anyone else. That you love him more than you love your mom and dad. That you love him more than you love your children. That you love him more than you love your spouse even. That you love him more than 
anyone. That's who his disciples are. Those who love him first. Those who love him foremost. And since love is an action, it means that you and I will be actively committed to following him more than going in the direction that these other relationships may desire to take us. So Jesus is saying clearly, you cannot. He didn't say the probability factor was off a little bit. He's emphatic. You cannot be my disciple unless all other relationships are second to me. All of them. They have to be second. If they're not second, you can try to follow me, but one day you're going to quit. You won't finish the task. You won't complete the course. you'll discover that you weren't a disciple at all. Now, many of our relationships recognize and even join with us in this loyalty to Christ first. But that's not always the case, is it? You may even find yourself right now being pulled away from Christ and his will for your life by those who are your own family. Friends, perhaps in your Dating relationships. You're trying to walk toward Jesus and his word, and they're pulling you in the other direction. Now, I'm thankful that I have relationships in my life who do not pull me away from Christ. They not only push me toward Christ, they walk with me toward Christ. That needs to be the predominant relationships in our lives. But that's not to say that there aren't people maybe even family, that while I'm trying to go toward Jesus, they're trying to pull me in the opposite direction, whether it's intentionally or subtly. And we have to come face to face with this reality as it relates to our relationship with Christ. This is where Jesus gives us the full disclosure that following me may may cost you some relationships. For if you want to be my disciple, you have to love me more than you love them. You have to be willing to let go of those who are pulling you in the opposite direction so that you continue going in the direction of Jesus. Letting go. Letting go. Loving me more than you love those that you have to let go. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. J.C. Ryle, writing on this passage, said, Experience shows both in the church at home and in the mission field that the greatest foes to a man's soul are sometimes those of his own house. It sometimes happens that the great hindrance is the opposition of relatives and friends. The true Christian must be willing to offend his closest relationships rather than to offend Christ. I've been thinking about this in relationship to the church. 
I'm writing a little research paper in my schoolwork this week, contrasting different church models and how sometimes so many churches get wrapped up in the community, the community. I'm not talking about the community in which we live, but the, the community relational dynamic of people. And that's part of what God has given to us in the gift of the church. But it's not the supreme part. The supreme part of the church is Christ. Christ. And so what we have to do at times is ask ourselves, as a church body, what do we value more? Do we value community more, or do we value Christ more? Now, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. That's not my point. The point, rather, is Christ is to be the one that we honor and we seek after and we follow, even if we, even if we have to offend the community. Even if we have to offend the family. Even if we have to offend those who are closest to us. May Christ not be offended. May Christ be followed. Now, given that context, I need to ask you a question. And I couldn't ask you this question until I gave you the context because you totally misunderstand me. But now given the context of what he's saying, I need to ask you a question. Do you love your family too much? Compared to Christ. Do you love your family too much? Do you find yourselves committed more to those friends who are keeping you from being faithful to Christ than you are yourselves committed to Christ? Perhaps this one question would answer it all. Is Jesus more valuable to you than anybody? If not, Jesus says in full disclosure, you can't be my disciple. He's demanding that you love him more than you love yourself, than you love others, than you love anything for that matter. This is a constant tension and struggle, isn't it? Because we all find ourselves loving things more than we ought to love them. So Jesus turns to the crowd and says, before we go any further, I just want you to know that if you're really going to follow me, it may cost you some relationships. But you need to determine whether or not I'm worth it. What will Jesus cost you? He may cost you. He may. He may cost you some relationships. Secondly, following Jesus may cost you a great deal of suffering. Following Jesus may cost you a great deal of suffering. So at the end of verse 26, he says, not only must you hate, and we've, we've talked about what that means, right, okay? Not only would you hate mom, dad, brother, sister, but he says, you got to hate your own life also. You've got to love 
you got to love Christ more than you love yourself. And then he continues that, that thought right through verse 27 when he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So not, not only is he calling us to love him more than any other relationship, but, but he's calling us to love him more than we love ourselves. Because, listen, church family, that is the only way we're going to endure the suffering that comes to us. The only way we're going to endure suffering is if we love him more than we love ourselves, that we love his purposes, his sovereign plan, his choices, his gospel, more than we love our comforts and conveniences. So he says, for those of you who want to follow me, you need to realize that in order to follow me, there may be some times in your life where you're going to have to bear your cross. The cross is a place of sacrifice. It's a place of shame. It's obviously a place of suffering. And here's what many today around the world are not being told as they are invited to come to Christ. They're not being told that the call to follow Jesus is a call to suffering. Come to Jesus. He'll make you happy. He will. Certainly. Come to Jesus. He'll make you healthy. Maybe. Come to Jesus. He will open doors you never imagined. That may be, but probably not what you're thinking. Jesus says, you want to follow me? Get ready to suffer. You want to follow me? Get ready to make some sacrifices. You want to follow me? Then get ready to be the shame of society. Because unless you're willing to sacrifice and unless you're willing to suffer and unless you're willing to endure shame and ridicule from the culture, you'll not finish. You'll not complete the course. You'll quit. You'll walk away like everybody else. That's why Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings. That's a hard thing to say, isn't it? It's easier to say when you're on the other side of suffering. It's real easy to say if you've not really endured a great deal of suffering. But when you're slap dab right in the middle of it, which I have no idea what slap dab means. It just sounds pretty good. When you're in the middle of it, to say, I rejoice in my suffering, you couldn't pull that out of me. That's a hard thing to do. Paul says, I rejoice in, in my sufferings. For I know that I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. It's an interesting word choice there. I don't think Paul's suggesting that Christ's suffering on the cross wasn't enough when he says, I am filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. I don't think he's suggesting that Christ's crucifixion, his suffering, shame, all of that was insufficient. What he's saying is that Christ's sufferings are still being carried out. And they're still being carried out through his people. 
So the reason for his rejoicing and suffering is because Paul knows that just like Calvary, it's not only bearing fruit in his own lives and in the lives of others, but it's also identifying him more and more with Jesus. That's what suffering does. It identifies us more and more with Jesus who suffered for our sakes. Again, Paul says, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, we let it a moment ago, that to know Jesus is to share in his sufferings, to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That means becoming like him and experiencing the same shame, sacrifice, all of these things. Jesus warned us about this. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. There's no guarantee that it will be great on earth, but great it will be in heaven. So blessed are you when you suffer for Christ's sake. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, you will be hated for my name's sake. But the one who endures the hatred to the end will be saved. He's the one who's the true disciple. Whoever told you that following Jesus would lead you to a pain-free life of acceptance and prosperity did not tell you the truth. The truth is, we who follow Jesus are called to bear our own cross. That cross may look and feel different from others, but it is our cross, and it is a cross that we must endure, not For the saving of our souls, Christ is the only one who could bear the cross for the saving of our souls. No, we are to bear our own cross, our own sufferings, our own sacrifices because we belong to him. Following Jesus isn't easy. It isn't sweet. It isn't a burden-free life. Sometimes it involves physical hardship. Sometimes it includes personal hurt. And all the time, there is intense spiritual warfare. But here's the question we must answer. And please do not miss this. Is a life of suffering with Jesus more valuable to you than a life of prosperity Without him. Is a life of suffering with Jesus more valuable to you than a life of prosperity without him? He says, You've got to count that cost. You've got to determine whether or not I am worth it to you. And that's why he calls us to deny ourselves, to die daily, to be more committed to the will of God than we are to our own plans and our own dreams. Nobody sets out a vision for their life that involves hardship. You know, when I turn 38 years old, I really would like to have the worst emotional mental collapse of my life. Lord, make sure you do that for me. 
So are we more committed to his will, his purposes, his plans than we are our own dreams and desires? Because if you follow Jesus, I just need you to know suffering is going to come. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And those who are more committed to Jesus than they are themselves will endure and they will persevere through the suffering that will eventually come. Again, I go back to J.C. Ryle who had some wonderful comments in his commentary about this passage. He says, it costs something to be a true Christian. Don't get mad at me, get mad at J.C. He says, it's cheap and easy to go to church. But to follow him requires self-denial. It will cost us our sins, our self-righteousness, our ease, our worldliness. The Lord Jesus would have us thoroughly understand this and count the cost as we follow him. Let me say it again. To go to church is cheap and easy. But to follow Jesus requires much self-denial. In other words, following Jesus is going to cost you. And it may, it may cost you a great deal of suffering. So again, put it back in the context. Jesus turns to the crowd and says, look, guys, before we go any further, I just want you to know that if you're really going to follow me, it may cost you. It may cost you some relationships. And it may cost you a great deal of suffering. And before we take another step forward, you need to determine whether or not I am worth it. Because if I'm not worth it to you, you cannot be my disciple. He gives us one more. And the third one is this in verse 33. Following Jesus may cost you everything you materially hold dear. Following Jesus may cost you everything you materially hold dear. So therefore, verse 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In other words, Jesus has to be more important to you than your stuff, for lack of a better term. Think about all that you have, all that you own, all that is yours, all the stuff. You got to be willing, Jesus says, to give up all that stuff if you really want to be my disciple. You have to be willing to say goodbye. Goodbye to everything you have in order to follow Jesus. You know what? That's really what it all comes down to, isn't it? That's the essence of repentance. We are either saying goodbye to Jesus, thanks for the offer, but no thanks, or we're saying goodbye to ourselves. I wonder this morning if Jesus asked you to sell everything you have and move to a place around the world to share the gospel with those who never have heard. 
would you do it? I'm asking myself these same questions. In fact, don't tell my wife, but I was actually thinking about it last night. As I was studying and praying and looking over this again, it was asked if God whispered in my own ear, how about you? Are you willing to walk away from Laurel? Are you willing to say goodbye to America? Are you willing to eat European food the rest of your life? Actually, fish and chips every day would be wonderful. Genuinely, though, genuinely. If God asked you to sell everything you have and go somewhere else where the gospel is not prevalent, would you go? What if he asked you to walk away from that lucrative job that you have in order to serve the gospel in vocational ministry? Would you do it? Well, what if Jesus laid it upon your heart to sacrifice a possession or a saving that you really hold dear in order to expand the ministry of his kingdom through our local church? Would you do it? Following Jesus, he says, means that you treasure him more than anything. It means you treasure him more than everything. And if he leads you to give something up that you hold dear, you got to be willing to do it because that's how committed you are to Jesus. And that's how valuable he is to you. He's more valuable to you than your home. More valuable to you than your car. More valuable to you than all your vacations and your retirement and all these things you want to do. What does Jesus really cost you? You see, that's the problem. Because there's a great deal of people who profess Christ and it's costing them nothing. And thereby we have to truly evaluate whether we are truly in Christ. Because he says, you cannot come after me unless you're willing to wave goodbye to it all. Now you're beginning to see why many turned around and walked away. Jesus, I'm sorry there was a misunderstanding. <laughs> you see, we're, we're kind of here because we love bread and fish. But you know, all this, you know, walking away from our house and our friends and our family and all, you know, you're a really good guy and all. Don't get me wrong. We have a lot of respect for you. But I, I don't think that's for us. So we're going we're gonna to go on back to the house. Droves. In fact, almost everyone. And Jesus is standing there where 5,000 plus used to be. And here he sees 12 guys and he says, all right, you going to join them? Or are you going to really follow me? It's convicting, isn't it? Because we've been, fell, we've been fed in this American culture a Christianity that's not really Christian. That's not really from Christ. Friends, Jesus wants more than your heart. He wants it all. He wants your total and complete loyalty. He wants your full obedience and your deepest commitment. Nothing is to have more of a hold on your life than the Lord Jesus and his gospel purposes. Kathleen and I decided a long time ago that God always has our yes. 
he always has our yes. Now, sometimes he has to jerk me around a little bit until I get that yes out. Because I'm flesh just like you. I'm human. I'm sinful. I struggle with faith. But with God's help, patience, and grace, he always has our yes. So whatever he asks of us, it's yes. It's yes. We may not configure it out. It may not make sense financially. It certainly may not make sense in terms of our life and all that kind of stuff. But God, if that's what you want, it's yes. And some of us need to get to that point because I don't know if there's ever been a point in most of our lives where we say, God, no matter what, it's yes. No matter what, it's yes. So again, Jesus turns to the crowd and says, hey, before we go any further, I just want you to know, I just want you to know if you're really going to follow me, it's going to cost you some relationships. It's probably going to cost you a great deal of suffering. And it may, it may cost you everything you hold dear. So you need to determine whether or not I'm worth it. Is he to you? Is he more valuable to you than anything this world could give you? Is he more valuable to you than anything retirement could offer? Is he more valuable to you than anything a job would promise? Is he more valuable to you than all these friends that are trying to pull you away from him? Pastor, why is Jesus demanding all this? Because it would appear to me he doesn't want me to follow him. <laughs> okay, if you've thought that somewhere along the way in the last 30 minutes, you're not alone. I thought about it this week too. I read this and I think, like, I, I struggle loving him supremely. I struggle rejoicing in sufferings. I struggle saying goodbye to those things I love. It would appear, Jesus, that you're, you, you don't want me to follow you. Oh, please listen to me. Jesus is not trying to discourage you from following him. He wants you to know what it's really going to cost. Because if you know what it's really going to cost, you'll follow him in full commitment. That, that devotion to him, it'll be sincere and enduring. You won't quit as a result of never truly being all in. And that's where he brings us to this seemingly random comment about salt. What in the world does salt have to do with this? Well, let me just be the first to tell you from one who loves salt, salt has everything to do with everything. I don't eat unless I see salt nearby. In fact, one of the most glorious statements in all the Bible is the statement that he makes right here at the end of verse or the beginning of verse 34 when he says, Salt is good. Amen, Jesus. <laughs> salt is good. But, but if you're following along with me, you're thinking, okay, I don't get it. Like you've been talking about giving away all this stuff, and all of a sudden now we're tossing salt out the window. I don't understand. Well, He's saying here, well, let's just read it, verse 34. Salt is good, 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's, it's thrown away. We, we understand this concept, right? Yeah, don't, don't, don't give me any vegan salt. I don't want vegan salt. Or sugar-free candy. That's for the birds. If I'm eating candy, load it with sugar. If I'm having fries, I want the salt. And please don't send me another email about my eating habits. You worry about your own relationship with God, and I'll worry about mine. But the point is clear, right? Why would you eat? I made the mistake. I made the mistake to try to lose weight a couple months ago. That was the mistake. It's so hard to say no to candy when, 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 when I am who I am. So I thought one day, I, I, I had went like four weeks without a single piece of candy. And I thought, I'm going to go down here to Harris Teeter, and I'm just going to see what's available. And it's like temptation, right? I haven't had candy in a month. I just start, I, I walk down the candy aisle. Oh, Starbucks are so good. Oh, there's some gummy bears, the Harbro kind. Those are the best. I know they're from Germany, but they're absolutely fantastic. And then I go, I go over here to the healthy aisle and just kind of debrief a little bit. And then, you know, it's like that temptation that sucks you back in. And we're like, okay, we're going to go back to the aisle nine for a minute. I know it's aisle nine. And then I saw hanging up in this corner, organic gummy bears. That's it, Lord. You have provided for me organic candy. No sugar, no preservatives, none of this. That was the worst purchase of my stinking life. I put one of those little bears in my mouth and I vomited. So I agree with Jesus. If it don't have sugar, if it don't have salt, if it's not doing what it's supposed to do, throw it out. Get rid of it. Okay. It may look like salt, but it's not salt. It may look like salt, but it doesn't carry out the purpose of salt. So it's no of use. It's of no good. Get rid of it. What does it have to do with Jesus here? Because what he's saying here is to profess faith in Jesus without a supreme love for him is a profession that's meaningless. It's like salt without distinction. It's like candy without sugar. You got it? To profess faith in Jesus without a supreme love for Jesus, that profession is meaningless. However, those who profess faith in Jesus and choose to love him more than anything and everything will find their distinction in this world. They will be like salt that has its taste spread throughout the world. They will be of great use to the master and his kingdom. But if there's no distinction, they're useless. I don't want to follow Jesus and be of no use to him. And I think that's what Jesus is ultimately saying. To be of use to me 
I mean, to really be my disciple, you have got to realize it's going to cost you something. It may cost you some relationships. It may cost you a great deal of suffering. And it may cost you everything you hold dear. That possession, that possession that you don't want to let go. But is he worth it? Is he that valuable to you? Paul said, and I close with this scripture. Philippians 3 verse 8, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may have Christ. That's his call. To count everything else as rubbish in order to follow him.